house is clean, the beer is chilled, the music is loud, and there is a dance floor no matter how small. We're in our favorite fancy but comfy clothes. The cafecito is hot and some spicy chaya is ready to be poured. We're Jamie and Hannah and we're so happy you joined us. Welcome to This American Rice. This podcast is about convening around the table to enjoy food and build community, just like our ancestors have been doing for generations. Here, we use all of our senses to embrace the intersections of culture and identity in all their messiness, reclaiming our experiences as nourishment to push back against the echoes of manifest destiny. We share stories, practices, lessons learned, and recipes. Even our simplest of pleasures is subversive. We're going to digest together. And you're going to leave with food and seeds to plant. Come, sit, eat, feast on your life. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our first episode of This American Race. I am Hannah. And uh, today is very special because our first person, our guest on the show is our very own Jamie, or you may know her as Jamie. Let me tell you a little bit more about her. Jamie Philomena George Katara Palil as a Dorian. She goes, her pronouns are she, her. She describes herself as a short brown skinned woman who people think is taller than she really is. She has a big smile and big Leo hair and warm Leo energy. She is an ecstatic mama, teaching artist, and ancestor in training who is passionate about helping people connect to their own wisdom and power so we can all have a more peaceful time in this world. She spent her life doing that in various ways, dance, music, theater, teaching artistry, using the arts to educate, community health, motherhood, yoga, and of course, podcasting. She's currently obsessed with practicing intuitive gardening and creating the most head-turning, traffic-slowing front yard in the small city she lives in on the Yukuts territory. And working with her dear friend, Hannah, that's me. Uh, to bring more self-trust and love into the universe through their business, Tharavada Yoga, and their podcasts, Meditation and Community, and this show, This American Race. So maybe we can start off um, by just talking a little bit about the dish that, that you shared, that you're sharing with us today. Oh, yeah. Okay. So... Um, I wanted to think of something very simple uh, that doesn't take a lot of ingredients or time to make. And this is one of um, my favorite snack foods. And um, it's it's a recipe from uh, where my family is from in India. It's a state called Kerala. It's in the south, very tropical, um, very close to the ocean. And um, 
And, um, and yeah, the food is just, it's a little different from, it's South Indian food. And so it has a little different flavor than um, the food that we usually get in restaurants in the U.S., which tends to have a more North Indian flavor. So what we have today is what I would call in English sweet potato with green chili chutney. Um, but in Malayalam, we just call it which means smashed chilies. Mm. And um, we're eating it with madra orurkalinge, which is um, sweet potato. So we boiled up some sweet potatoes. We smashed up hella chilies and shallots and, you know, threw in some salt and some water and some coconut oil. Super simple, but so delicious. Um, and also, I should just note that underneath my nails is still burning from getting all the seeds and ribs out of the serrano peppers. So that's what we're eating. Um, so I'm almost done with mine because I started yes. a little bit early and I had a chayote in the refrigerator that just looked like it was going to be so sad. It's just, it was very dry and sad. Mm -hmm. And I added it here, added some more of the chutney and it was, mm -hmm. and it's delicious. Mm. And um, I do have to say, Jamie, that the recipe was simple to make. I couldn't find my molcajete. So I ended up having to use a food processor, mm -hmm. um, but it did what it needed to do. And my ancestors came to me while I was also um, prepping the serrano peppers. That's what I used to. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I you're, you're doing this without gloves. <laughs> and so the bot, like my fingertips are also a little bit on fire. And I was scared because <laughs> I had to do my makeup after. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I don't know, I like burned my face. I was so, like, I'm so glad I already did my eye makeup. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but this is really delicious. Um, it's simple, but I think I really like the, the sweet potatoes with like the fat of like the coconut oil and, um, uh, the, the grocery store didn't have any shallots. So I ended up using yellow onion and it was yeah. fine. It's delicious. Um, and it just, it feels comforting mm. and it feels somewhat familiar. I don't know why, but that's how I can describe it. And I'm feeling very comfortable and warm um, enjoying yeah. it. So thank uh, you for sharing it with us. I'm going to take one yeah. bite. I love that you threw in that chayote squash too, because like, just like that, you created fusion. <laughs> fusion cuisine is happening right now, right here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so... Let me yeah. also admit that I ended up using a food processor too for part of it because my shoulder and my wrist have been having problems on my dominant side. And so I was like, I can't do this. And I was making enough for the week. So I was like, it's just going to have to, I put it in the processor. I had tried smashing it, you know, on my own. And then I put it in the processor and then I took it out and I did some more smashing on my own. Um, and it's just, it's still delicious. Just food process it if you want to. Yeah, it was really good. Oh, and you, when you first started telling me about this recipe, you talked about cilantro, and I couldn't get it out of my head. So I did put some cilantro on it as well, oh, and it was just oh. right. I don't know. I couldn't get it out of my yes. head. And I was like, yes. sprinkle it on. So I love it. I love yeah. it. I actually I had some cilantro in the fridge too, and I looked at it when I went to get the chilies, and I was like, let me just do it the old way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really good. Mm -hmm. um, and so... 
I'm so glad that we get a chance to get to know you a little bit better and um, maybe, you know, getting some, some learnings from you. Can you tell us a, a story, the story or a story behind your name? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll go through it bit by bit. Um, my first name is Jamie, which um, growing up, I, I look very South Asian Indian. Um, well, sort of, that's a whole other story, but, um, people who can tell that I, that, you know, I'm South Asian or Indian, um, when I tell them my name is Jamie, people often ask, you know, yeah, but what's your real name? That happens less now. Um, but it did happen a lot growing up and Jamie is my actual real name. It was given to me at birth by my mother. It's on my birth certificate. And, um, she, I don't know if it was both of them. I heard the story from my mother. I'll say, let's say it's both of them. They named me Jamie because there were some TV shows, American TV shows that they really liked. And one of my mom's favorites was The Bionic Woman. And mm. The Bionic Woman's first name is Jamie. Oh, so okay. She All named right. me after The Bionic Woman. My middle name is Philomena, which is my paternal grandmother's name. That is a naming tradition that is um, part of the culture of the part of Kerala that my family comes from. Um, and the next name that I put is George, which was my last name um, as a child in Chicago when I was um, when I was when I was younger, um, because also of a Kairali uh, naming tradition, a naming tradition from Kerala and from the culture of our type of family, and that that um, tradition is that uh, the children in the family the the last name is your father's first name. Um, but then at some mm -hmm. point, we had to change that last name. We changed it to um, the name of the Tharvad, the name of the ancestral home, which is Kutarapalil, Kutarapalil with the, the American accent. And um, so when we moved from Chicago, or from Illinois to California to um, to um, Southern California first, um, we changed it to Kutara Palil so that we could all have the same last name because, of course, my dad's last name would not be, you know, George. It would be his dad's first name. So um, we did that because it just made things easier. Honestly, when we were doing like international travel, you know, we could all be the same last name so that people are not like, wait, this is your family. You know what I mean? Just that kind of thing. So, and then as Dorian is um, my married name, it's the name of my partner, my husband's family. So. Awesome. Thank you. And I mean, you've talked about it a little bit, right? But could you go into a little bit more uh, about your ancestral lineage or lineages? Um, what do you know about that, um, that part of you? And how connected are you to your lineage or ancestry? <clears throat> um, that is... 
not a straight answerable question for me. So um, my parents are both um, from a lineage that comes from the same state, Kerala, in India. Um, they were both born um, in South India. Um, uh, you know, I can't remember if my mom was born. I don't think my mom was born in Kerala, and I can't remember where it was that she was born. She moved around a bit because um, she was um, a military brat. And um, my dad was definitely born and raised in Kerala, like 100% Kairali um, upbringing. And, um, uh, and as far as we know, all going back, you know, their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents were all from Kerala. Um, at least that's how the story goes, as far as can be remembered, you know. Um, my mom grew up primarily in Bangalore. Bangalore is the place that she thinks of as home in India. And my dad grew up in Kerala. Um, so my ancestry, as far as place, is from there. Um, but I grew up in the U.S. and I, didn't, I wasn't taught to speak our native tongue, which is Malayalam. And so when we'd go to visit, and we went, we went every two years um, to visit while we were growing up. Um, but I never learned how to speak it, and um, and so as a result, it's uh, it's really hard to connect to my living relatives, you know, and even like my grandparents when they were alive. And um, there was. I think there was at least one great grandparent who was alive when I was like three or four. But again, because of the language barrier, there wasn't much interaction. And also culturally, it wasn't there wasn't a lot of interaction between the elders and the babies um, in in many parts of the family. So so yeah, there wasn't that much connection in that sense. Um, and so I spent a lot of my life disconnected in that way. And also in the States, I was, I felt disconnected from the Indian, South Asian Indian diaspora, because a lot of that was focused on folks um, who were in the Hindu tradition or in um, the uh, Muslim tradition, as far as I was exposed to. Um, so it wasn't like a an easy fit for me in that sense either. Um, I did enjoy, you know, being part of those groups. My the dance that I studied was classical Indian dance, Bharatanatyam, um, and so it was great to be around other Indian people. But there was still that separation. There weren't many um, Christian or Catholic um, Indian people around, you know, to connect to in that way, and you know. American culture did not support anything other than Hinduism as, you know, sort of the stereotypical religion mm -hmm. for uh, South Asian Indians. So, so there was this like disconnection in that sense. And it really wasn't until two years ago, almost three years ago, when I decided to take a yoga teacher training. And this was not like a South Asian yoga teacher training. This was like your typical yoga teacher training um, taught by white folks 
um, which is most of the people in the industry. Um, and nevertheless, you know, while studying, I found, I uncovered a really deep connection to my ancestors and began the conversation and began the connection to, to that power and to that trust and to that wisdom and to that love. And a lot of it was not some newfound stuff, you know, it was more just this feeling of, I have been having this all this time and even experiencing it sometimes, mm -hmm. but I've been sleepwalking it. I haven't been able to notice it. I haven't been able to witness that this is what's happening. Um, and so, yeah, just being able to be fully aware of these types of energy and power in my life has been um, really new, <laughs> you know, just like two, three years old um, and kind of a game changer for me. Hmm. It has, it's had a, it's has had a huge effect on, on our work together with, with this business and these podcasts. Wow. Thank you for sharing. And I'm, I'm so curious. You said the word game changer, right? And you, like thinking about the, the American experience, right? Where we are around folks from all different places. Uh, and you just described yourself as, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm putting words in your mouth because you did not specifically say it like this, but you <laughs> are a child of immigrants, right? Yeah coming into the United States and feeling like you're just, you're just getting, you're becoming a, like you are awakened to this amazing connection that you have, right. With, with your culture, um, in so many different ways. And you're still here in the U S as, a as a, a resident, a person who was on like living here, like, how do you deal? Like, what is that intersection of cultures like? And like, we use the term nidaki, nidaya, neither here or there. What does that feel like? Or what does that look like for you in your life? Mm. Well, it depended a lot on where I was, like where I was living. Um, and uh, how much autonomy I had, how much authority I had under on myself, you know, how much authority I had over myself. What's the word? There's a word I'm trying to think of. <clears throat> how much sovereignty I had. Mm -hmm. It had, it really varied based on that. So, you know, in Chicago, um, and in, you know, my first, you know, three or four years in California. So basically up until the age I was 14, I felt no sovereignty over myself. And um, so my feeling of nide aquí, nide allá was extremely deep. I felt like there was absolutely nowhere that I belonged. Um I I found myself feeling like I should never speak, like ever. Um, 
and to not talk about ideas or ask questions. Um, and so I ended up not really having anybody that I would think of as a friend at this stage of my life. You know, I, um, I was just so terrified of speaking to anyone, children, adults, you know, um, so, uh, and I, and I just didn't, I didn't have connection to the people around me in the States. And then when we would go to India where my, the rest of my family feels so comfortable with each other, I was uncomfortable there too. So I couldn't feel comfortable either in the place that my parents were born or the place that I was born. Um, you know, in, in Chicago where we lived, you know, it was a suburb, maybe a sub suburb eventually when I was in school of Chicago. Um, it was a private Catholic school and there was, I don't think there was a single other Indian person in that school other than my brother, mm. but you know, he was older than me in a different building and everything. Um, and then when we moved to California, um, once again, no Indian people in that classroom other than me until my sister came to school there. Um, but there were brown people there. And, um, and probably, like, my guess is that they were primarily Chicane, um, uh, Chicanex folks, kiddos. And um, there was a different kind of feel. It was like a, it was a warmer feel to me. Um, but I was still very much terrified of speaking and, you know, just had no concept of friends or making friends. And so it just wasn't happening. Um, and then when I went to high school, um, I was put in a high school that was another, this is all private Catholic schools. And so the high school that I went to was a very prestigious high school. Um, and it was all rich white people. It wasn't all rich white people, but it was a lot of rich white people. Um, that was what I was seeing anyways, you know, at, at that stage of my development. Um, and I just once again felt very out of place. But when I was 14 and in my first choir class, I just randomly decided, probably the teenage teenage brain and you know lack of frontal lobe development, to do something terrifying, which was to just decide that I was going to just start talking to whoever was around me and say whatever the fuck I wanted. Mm. And I did. And I made friends and I learned how to sing. And, um, you know, many of those friendships were were very surface and kind of fraught and like it was like probably not people who are a very good fit for me but I didn't know who I was yet at the time either um but it was my first time making friends um but I did still continue to feel like other like an other you know mm. um and and that was you know when I think I started to really sort of understand how ugly I felt, you know, like, like, um, all of whatever it is that is going on with me is very unattractive. Mm. And people, I like my assumption, my assuming point is that people don't want to be around me, don't want to be friends with me, 
um, and don't think that I'm attractive, specifically that one, you know. Um, yeah, and then um, uh, at some point I met, uh, I, I ended up befriending somebody in high school who was older than me. And, you know, they told me one day when I was sort of like finally talking about how like, I don't know why nobody is attracted to me, you know, she was just like, oh, it's because you're brown. Oh. <laughs> and um, it was like, it was like oh, running wow. into a glass door. Like. I felt that was, <laughs> right now as you told it. I, I felt it. Right, right. But it felt like it felt like such like a collision because it just everything clicked into place in that moment, you know, and that was sort of the beginning of my journey of understanding the difference that people see and how that perception plays out for me, not with me but for me, by somebody else, you know. Um, so that was a big turning point. And then the other big turning point I will, I will mention is that I moved to the Bay Area and I was working in Oakland and it was like I could breathe. Like the people walking down the streets, you know, like walking from the BART station to work like being on the train it was just like I was seen by strangers you know and it was like you know people would nod at me as I walked by you know just like a little greeting like hey I see you you know um you know like <laughs> you know there were pickup lines <laughs> you know what I mean like but net like it was just like a, it was just a very very different experience from living in um, either of the places I lived in, Southern California, Orange County, and San Diego. So, um, so yeah, that whole, um, that intersection stuff, I'm talking about like what seems kind of surface right now, but, um, but from like that development perspective, um, it really like that that feeling of being seen by strangers um being regarded you know being attended in a tiny even just like in a tiny second you know um feeling like there is some kind of kinship or camaraderie with a random person on the street was just not something that i had felt you know, outside of people who had already gotten to know me. Oh, wow. I used some really strong words. And I think I had, I think because of my own personal experience as a person of color, I mean, I may, I may be not like, I don't know, I, I'm a lighter skin Latina. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a shorter stature. Um, so I'm not like super, I'm not like a super intimidating person walking down the street, you know? Um, but I still, and I acknowledge though, um, that feeling that you talked about the othering or wanting to be invisible, um, the fear of, um, of speaking 
up for fear of being different and what it can actually feel like when you uh, actually find a place where you do feel comfortable just being yourself and um, the, the value of that. And I mean, I can imagine a lot of folks who are listening can relate to either one of those things or maybe even both. Um, but especially like just being an adolescent when you don't have a lot of what you describe as sovereignty, sovereignty over your own life, um, or your own person, what all of those complex feelings of feeling other, um, the impact that that can have. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think I'm process, processing a lot of like my own feelings and trauma with that yes. and safe space. Yes. And, yes. I welcome that. I love yeah. I, processing together to me is like yeah. magic. Yeah. So thank you. And, you know, we, we really wanted to create this space where we wanted to bring people together, telling stories, right? These these stories that are so relatable that sometimes we just don't have a lot of time to talk about or have the space, right. To be open and have this dialogue. And we wanted to do it around food. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that when everybody's still virtual and you and I, we still live hours away from each other. Yeah. And so, you know, coming back to that space of, um, that space of communion or like sharing, over food. Can you please share with us a food story? Uh, Maybe something that's memorable or challenging or joyful. I'm just putting some stuff out there. Yes. Tell me if I can take a couple more bites of this delicious food. (laughs) Well, I didn't think ahead for this question. Gosh. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I do remember as a child in elementary school um, being told that my food smells funny, but my, my, my dad would pack my lunches, would pack our lunches, and it was always American food. It was like white bread and lunch meat from the deli with some cheese and an apple and like a hostess snack. Like that was my food every day. But yeah, people would still say like, oh, it smells funny. And and who knows? Maybe there was like some smell like, I mean, I know when I walk into my parents' house or when I've been away for a while and I come back into my house, it smells like spices, you know? <laughs> it smells like spices in here. That's how I want it. That's how I want my parents' house to be too. Um, so I don't know, maybe it was my clothes, but I don't know. It still Mm. feels a little bit disingenuous when I'm Mm. literally taking a sandwich that looks just like theirs out of my bag, you know? Mm. Um, but gosh, I mean, I feel like my whole life revolved around food (laughs) in a sense, you know, like the kitchen is the heart of the home, um, in my family, you know, when we'd go to India, um, I found myself in the kitchens a lot, you know, when they'd allow it, you know, um, and at home, you know, for a good part of my life, 
my grandmother lived with us, which was such a blessing in so many ways. But um, but she cooked every day. She did like the the traditional. <laughs> Indian thing of you don't serve leftovers, you know, we did, she, you know, we did have to make some compromises on that. I realize as I'm saying this, like, I think she had to allow there to be leftovers um, because we eat rice that had been cooked the day before and stuff like that. But more often than not, it was something that had just been made that day. And I got to be her sous chef, like from the time I was like, two, three years old, I was like grating coconut on the floor and, you know, um, and just smelling the smells and hearing the sounds and looking what it looks like as food is getting cooked and seeing the sizes that things are chopped and diced to and, you know, seeing what it looks like when you're blending stuff and what consistency it gets to. And um, all of that stuff it lived in me and I didn't know it until my 20s. I thought I couldn't cook until like in my 20s, um, in my in my attempts to ignore all this, you know, all the schoolwork that I had to do when I was in college, <laughs> I would just turn on Food Network and just mm -hmm. lay there probably depressed and anxious and just watching the Food Network channel <laughs> for hours and hours and like after you know, who knows how long I was like, let me just fucking try to make some, you know, beans thorin, you know, like beans macaroni. And, um, and I did and it was good. And then I moved on from there to like chicken curry. Like once you know how to make like anything macaroni, you can make any vegetable in that, in mm. that method of cooking. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah, and my, my repertoire has been growing since then. And most of my ability to cook these foods well is because of those, because of the sense memories that live inside my body, mm -hmm. you know, that live in my spirit, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, it's why I can look at a really complicated recipe for Indian food, which doesn't usually happen. It's usually like me calling my mom and being like, how, what is, how do you do this? <laughs> you know, but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's why I can make it taste right. You know? Mm. Oh, I love it. And it definitely sounds like cooking um, is one of your ways of connecting back to the self. Oh yes. Right. Oh, yes. Connecting to the self. And um, making medicine. It's yeah, right? Source of medicine for us. And so then what are some of the other practices that you've incorporated um, to to kind of align with that, with your relationship with like food and cooking to really help get back um, to set that self-connection or um, connection with the universe? Yeah. Well, vegetation, right? That the practice of... Um, meditation that we call vegetation that is what this you know the apparent podcast of this is all about um that is a huge connector of me to my ancestors and that power and that wisdom um it's the place where it flows the most consistently mm -hmm. and not just not consistently the most um um almost forcefully <laughs> you know what i mean like mm. the most clearly i i don't even know how to describe it it's just like 
you know, in my everyday life, there are moments all the time where I'm connected to the ancestors. And it's usually in little quick ways, right? Because that's what I have time to to notice or witness most of the time. I take care mm -hmm. of two young, very rambunctious and creative and energetic children. Um, so it's there's not a lot of downtime, you know, for me. Um, but in vegetation, I will... I, 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 the epiphanies really come mostly through vegetation. Um, so that's a big one for me. But those other small moments are, are just as important. Um, I really try to make a little personal ceremony or ritual out of my morning tea, um, at least my morning tea. And then if I can get another one in there, I do try to. And it's little things like, sort of listening in to see what spices I'm gonna put in my tea today, or none, you know? Or just going out to the garden, right now my neighbor's garden, because I pulled out all my rose bushes, um, and just getting a few rose petals to put in the tea, or cutting a little lemongrass or mint for it, you know? Depending on what what is calling out for me, you know? And that that aspect of it, of listening for what what is calling out, Right? What is the body calling out for? Or what's kind of like pull, calling out to me from the cabinet? You know what I mean? Or, um, you know, I, I like to connect with my baby selves. And so, you know, maybe baby Jamie, who lives in my shoulder, is, you know, she's asking me to put a little ginger in there because we need a little grounding right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so definitely a lot of what I'm hearing from, from you, from what you shared is really taking small moments to listen in, to like listen into the self, listen in to maybe the things around you and how, like whether it's like spirit, mental, physical, but like really like listening in to like, how am I doing in this space? What do I need? And it has to happen like very quickly because of just life, right? Yeah. Um. And all of that. So daily life, like you talked about being a mama, right? You have two small kids. What are the barriers though that you experience to really um, maybe like having like this continu like continuous practice, those daily rituals that are grounding, that are self-affirming, self-connecting? What are the barriers that show up in your life? To the, for those for you to like have those practices. Yes. Oh, I mean, <clears throat> one of the biggest barriers for me is just being really tired. Like my body being very tired. Mm. I am. Um, I have um, an invisible disability called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and it's a connective tissue disorder. And we have connective tissue all throughout our bodies. And I won't go into much detail about it, but it does, it can cause a lot of pain. Um, and it's, it can be extremely energy draining. And it's a little bit hard to tell when it's going to be draining and when it's not. Mm. And um, taking care of these two little ones all day, which is, you know, while it is the joy of my life, it's also <laughs> extremely energy consuming to take care of two little ones. Yeah. Um, so there's that and um, trying to find that balance between 
being respectful to them and their needs and also trying to get the rest and stillness that my body needs um it's a really tough balance to create um and when I'm trying to juggle those two very um, time and, and like time-consuming things, it becomes very hard to find time for spiritual practice or you know other ways of connecting. You might be able to hear one of them like out there right now. I think there's some kind of a game happening in the hallway right outside the store. <laughs> oh, that's real life. Oh my goodness. I think a lot of folks that are listening in, I mean, there's so many podcasts that like just sound so perfect. And I know that when I've listened into like our vegetation podcast or even now this, I'm like, this is real life. Like we got kids, we live in homes, we take care of households. And, you know, I mean, we may have our studio space or office space, but like everything blends, right? Things happen, life happens, and it's happening all around us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so from your experience with all of these, uh, these practices that you share, the barriers that you've talked about, what have you learned from these? Or like, yeah. um, What are your takeaways that you would like to share with us? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that's coming to mind for me is that um, there are a lot of barriers, but somehow I was able to find my way back to myself and my ancestral wisdom and power. And that's, that's not something I would have believed if somebody told me that it was possible. Mm. Um, it's not even something I would have noticed if I didn't take a yoga teacher training and have this, you know, sort of um, acceptable reason to just sit and read the Bhagavad Gita. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> or just to to read about the philosophies of yoga and do deep dives into like picking apart what each you know, bhatu of a Sanskrit word means, you know, like, and, you know, nobody needs to do that for the, you know, the first yoga teacher training, the 200 hour, probably for most of them, <laughs> nobody's expecting yeah. anyone to dive into the root words of Sanskrit, um, of Sanskrit mm-hmm. words. But I sort of, nobody knew what I was doing. They just knew that I was studying for, you know, the certification. So I felt like I could, I felt like I could do it. I could study the way that I study. Um, and I, I, I think where I'm going with this is that I needed permission from dominant culture mm. to be able to study this thing. And because I took that yoga teacher training, I had that permission for myself, right? Mm -hmm. But also for the people around me who are like, wait, I want you to be doing this other thing right now to help me out. You know what I mean? Um, We accept school and certification specifically, like Mm -hmm. a certifiable Uh. education. (laughs) We accept that as a reason for you to use your time for something other than what you're supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? So without that, 
I wouldn't, I don't know when I would have come back to this. Maybe when I die, maybe that's when I would have come back to it, you know. But through that, through that study, I found my way back. Mm -hmm. I remembered, I realized that as a child, even I think up to, up until high school, um, I was somebody who had a very deep connection to the spiritual world, to my ancestors, and to humans without speaking to them, you know, because I was terrified of speaking. But like, you know, because I was raised Catholic, you know, at night, one of the things that I would do to fall asleep is I would go through the list of names of every single person alive in my very extensive family on both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side. I would just go through the list of names, praying for them. And like, and it was how I connected to my family who I couldn't speak to, you know, and to the family that I did speak to, obviously, like the people closest to me were in the prayers, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, I realized that, that this connection to the spiritual realm has been here all this time. But around high school, I tried to disconnect from it to favor science and math and the things that were showing up for me as the places to the the things to value because my family really valued an education that was either medicine or secondarily law or engineering <laughs> so <laughs> i was like those are my choices um. or i could be president those are my choices. And that's it. <laughs> yes. Good luck. <laughs> right. So I was yeah. like, I guess that's my values then. Um, let's fuck um, all this stuff. Bye. Other spiritual stuff. No. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, what do you think your life would have been like if you would have been connected or have like connected to your ancestors in this lineage that you've described that you kind of found or like woke up? in or like to discover or re rediscover so like what do you think it would have been like if from like the very beginning you mm -hmm. had it if somebody were to say jamie this is yours who would have been like i mean if somebody else said it to me i wouldn't have believed it still mm -hmm. you know what i mean but if it was never washed out of me it's not mm -hmm. washed out if it was never covered up you know mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think I would be a really lonely person. I think I would have been a very lonely person. I think it would have taken a very long time before I found anybody who was also being themselves like this. I think I would have been, I think that actually it would have been extremely damaging for me. Because I was already so profoundly lonely going into high school. If I continued to be lonely through high school, I don't know how long I would have been for this world. Because mm. even, you know, once I found friends, there was still like a deep depression and there was a deep sense of loneliness. I still struggle with the feeling of loneliness. Um, not nearly as much of a struggle as it was before, thankfully. Mm -hmm. um, 
thanks to amazing therapists <laughs> and other practices. Um, but um, yeah, I just don't know how long it would have taken to find my people. And I don't know if I would have been able to build um, my confidence. I, it may have been even more eroded if I were to, to be more connected to that um, sort of spiritual um, sort of communion with the ancestors in real time. Mm. Mm. You know, wow. I wouldn't play well with the cultures mm. around me. Yeah. Ah. Wow. And this is our last question as we start wrapping up. Like, and there's so much more that I think we can talk about. And I think that this will bring up other questions for like our vegetation sessions or like discussion and for anybody listening in i mean you can always send us an email you can always yes. reach out to us we're on social media instagram anywhere facebook we are happy to read your messages and what resonates for you from this from this conversation because i i know a lot has come up for me and um and it feels uh it's a reminder of you know we find our people and folks that may not have exactly these, um, the same experiences as us, but there's just something um, about this whole nidaki, nidaya, not from here or there, um, that we experience as maybe folks of color, BIPOC folks in the US. It's always feeling a little, little othered. Yeah. And, um, send us your questions. Yeah. If you have more questions, um, I'm happy to answer them. You know, yeah. I uh, I would have loved to have somebody answer my questions as I was growing up and as I was disconnected from myself and my ancestors and as I was beginning my journey of reconnecting. It would have been wonderful to ask some questions and hear from other people. And we'd love to hear your stories too of your disconnections, mm. of your reconnections, of your in-betweens. Mm. We welcome all of it. Definitely. <sighs> what kind of ancestor or elder do you want to be? <sighs> no. I want to be the elder who you come to to sit down, have a nice meal, maybe pick some food from the garden and cook some of it together and eat some of it together and take some of it home for you to cook later. I want to be the ancestor whose house you go to when you need some medicine that comes from the earth. Um, I want to be the ancestor who, you know, um, you can leave your kids with and like all of our, all of your people's kids can play together, you know, and be in a safe and warm and connected place. 
I want to be the ancestor who's a secret keeper and who helps you sort of have somebody sitting beside you while you're navigating your hard times. Um, I want to be the ancestor who is constantly giving away seeds <sighs> while I'm here in this body. And when I'm gone, I want to be the ancestor that, you know, that fucks with you a little bit, that will make something stupid happen so that you learn something <laughs> and you remember it because it was irritating, but also funny. <laughs> right, you have me like in tears because like, I don't know, I think I just felt like the presence of all of our ancestors here. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and, um, you know, just thinking about how for so, like for so many folks, never really getting to, to, to even think about that question because of maybe thinking that their life is not as meaningful or um, they are not going to live that long or that they um, not really provided the space to think about it. And I really invite everyone listening in to think about that. What kind of elder or ancestor do you want to be? Um, my heart feels big and warm right now, and I feel very loved. Yes. Yes. Me too. Me too. Mm. We are. We are. We all are. These ancestors, they are not just here for us. They are here for everyone listening, everyone who is touched by this energy, those who, you know, are affected by the energy that each listener brings to the next interaction. Mm. That oh ripple my gosh. Effects. Mm. It's moving already. Real Thank you for sharing yourself with us today and for sharing this delicious recipe, which we will have up on, um, on our website, or we'll have a link for it too in the podcast show notes or the show description. Yeah. And, um, it is really lovely being connected to your lineage today. Um, this is American rice, y'all. This is American yes, rice. It it's complex. It's delicious. <laughs> it fucks with you a little bit. It makes you think. Makes you a little uncomfortable. Yeah, but that's what it is. Um, all right. Thank you so. for holding this space today, Hannah. Thank you for the way that you moved us through these questions. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well. We'll see you all again soon and we'll have more guests on and please, like Jamie mentioned, send us your questions. Um, yes. Let us know what you think. Any feedback? Yes. yes. Yep. Thank you for listening to our stories. Thank you for spending time with us. We hope you feel called to keep the conversation going with the people in your life. And we'd love to stay connected with you too. Head to our website, TharavadaYoga.com, to find more info on this episode and to let us hear what you have to say. And check out our other offerings to foster nourishing community, wellness, and self-sovereignty. 
Take good care. Much love.